You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on the Book of Romans, now looking at Romans P. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Welcome back. This is Podcast P in the Romans series. We ended last section with the assurance that we are children of God. If we suffer with Christ, this final section of Romans 8 on victorious Christian living places everything into eternal perspective. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, I'll make a comment right there, even though I've only just started. Our sufferings are completely dwarfed in magnitude by the glory to be revealed in us. There's a similar and very beautiful thought at the end of 2 Corinthians 4. And I I hope that you're encouraged by that passage. I love it. We consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared. What sufferings is Paul referring to? Are the Romans being persecuted as Christians? Well, probably no more than anywhere else. It was not illegal to be a Christian at this point. Uh, The state was giving flack to the church, but just on and off. It's not really illegal to be a Christian until the next century, the second century. I think he's probably talking about the normal kinds of sufferings of life and those that come with carrying the cross, living a countercultural life. The things that we choose not to participate in that bring reproach on us or mockery. The suffering that comes sometimes when we try to put others ahead of ourselves. At any rate, we look forward to an ultimate release from suffering. He'll talk about that very soon. Salvation is the basis for our Christian hope, another important concept he'll come back to, our ultimate resurrection and reward. Let's continue this majestic passage. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's quite a passage. Paul says that our sin has affected the entire creation. This was a common thought among the rabbis of his time, that the whole world has been subject to a certain kind of slavery. And certainly human sin does affect the creation. Now, I think they're going too far when some claim that death came through Adam and before Adam, nothing died, not even bacteria. Uh, Everyone lived, everything lived forever and so forth. I personally don't understand that view as being 
correct. I don't think that reflects what God has shown us in his creation, in nature, in science. I think death, to some extent, has been present from the beginning. But if that's the case, how does the creation groan and suffer in the pains of childbirth? Well, just think of all the ways that humans have hurt the creation. There is a place for Christian ecology, for environmentalism. I did a podcast on that once because I think that is, that's vital. We have affected our world. We've not always made our world a better place. Sin has all kinds of consequences, not just the social consequences of separation from others, alienation to God, or even being at odds with ourselves, separation from self. But sin has other impact. Greed can easily lead to over-harvesting. Irresponsible industry can lead to pollution on a massive scale. What's happening in the atmosphere of the earth right now? Right now, when what is pumped into the sky from smokestacks, of factories or the tailpipes of automobiles is affecting temperatures in some way. There's some dispute, although the vast majority of scientists, Christian and and non-Christian alike, agree that we are having a negative impact on the planet. It shouldn't be that way. When humans take advantage of the planet, instead of exercising dominion, are wasteful, whether it's cruel to animals or unwise in agricultural policy. And there's evidence of all these things going way back to the beginning. This may be the kind of thing Paul is thinking of. And then, let's go on a little further. Not only this, he says, but Also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So Paul's saying it's not just the creation that's groaning and looking forward to release, but we ourselves groan. Well, how so? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, are we not already adopted? Didn't Paul speak of the spirit of adoption earlier in 8.15? Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 1 that we're adopted as, as God's children? Well, we're already God's children. But there's more to come. It's kind of like the, the already and not yet concept in biblical theology. We're saved. In the past we were saved. But we're not yet saved. It's future. We're redeemed but not yet redeemed. It's coming. The kingdom has arrived. It's come, and yet it's still to come, and so we can pray for the kingdom to come. The already, the not yet, the future world breaking into the present world. It's paradoxical, but it's highly biblical. So we look forward to being adopted as God's sons and daughters, although we already are his sons and daughters. It's both. The analogy I use most often to try to clarify this already not yet is of house ownership. Thanks to 
an inheritance, an inheritance that my grandfather left us, we were able to buy a house. We did not buy the entire house. What I mean is the bank helps. We have a mortgage. So if you ask me, Douglas, uh, Vicky, is this your house? Yes, that's where we live. Do you own the house? Yes. Does anyone else own the house? Oh, I see what you mean. Well, yeah, the bank owns the house. Well, how much do you owe or how much have you paid? So it's not wrong to say we own the house, but we don't own it from another perspective. It's not ours from another perspective. Not yet. One day it'll be paid off. The already, the not yet. And if you have a mortgage, you understand that's quite different from renting. At any rate, think about these analogies. There's a time when we'll be adopted. Adoption's a wonderful thing. Our family made a decision years ago to adopt after having a couple of children, understanding that there were millions, maybe even a couple hundred million orphans in the world. We decided to reach out to adopt an Asian child. God is willing to adopt not just one child or two. God's willing, in principle, to adopt billions. The entire human race has an opportunity. And although some people have more opportunity than others, no one is left without excuse. Go back to Romans 1.20. Adoption, which Paul equates with redemption of our body. Many Christians, Protestants are most guilty, but many Christians downplay the redemption of the body. We think, well, salvation is spiritual, not physical, and that's just false. Firstly, spiritual is not the opposite of physical. Secondly, Jesus' death, resurrection, have an impact on all of us, not just the psychological component, but even on the corporeal component. Our bodies will be resurrected. When people say, well, I smoke, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to be using that body later on. Or yes, I throw my junk outside the car window. I litter. You know, the whole world's going to burn, so it doesn't matter. This attitude, poor stewardship, lack of ecological responsibility, lack of taking care of the temple, of the body, it's just wrong. In some sense, God will be transforming our bodies. We'll have a resurrection body. Just as Jesus, after his death, he was resurrected. The resurrection body was recognizable, often, as his body, although it had certain properties or powers that were new to it, but it was still his body. Otherwise, he could not have offered Thomas to see his wounds. Jesus was raised from the dead, but he was resurrected. A full resurrection entails a resurrection body. He's the only one on the planet who's been resurrected in the full sense. He is the first fruits. Others will be resurrected, but not until the last resurrection. And this time, we believe, is the redemption of the body. For in hope we've been saved, Paul continues. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So he says, in hope we've been saved. Now, 
It's not hope if you already see it or you already have it. I mean, if you passed your examination with a high grade, you would never say, well, I hope I did well. You've already received it. Hope is when you don't know. There has to be uncertainty. There has to be some degree of tension. That uncertainty or tension, to some extent, marks the Christian life. As we live between the ages, the already, the not yet, we're experiencing our future redemption. And this explains, although there's more to come, this explains why Paul can say in 2 Timothy 4.18 that God will rescue me and bring me into his heavenly kingdom. Isn't Paul already in the kingdom? Of course he is. And he hopes that he'll be able to enter it. The kingdom has come, but it's yet to come. That's a really important concept. It's new to you. I hope you'll meditate on that. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, the Spirit helps us in our prayers. Now, I don't know if the Spirit will pray for me if, if I don't want to pray for me. That would be nice because I find it harder to pray than to read. But the Spirit intercedes. God expects us to take initiative and speak. But there's nothing in this passage about the common charismatic interpretation, praying in tongues. The Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Where does that intercession take place? Is it here on earth? Is it something that we can hear or observe? I don't think so. And that's why I don't believe that this verse has anything to do with the miraculous first century gift of speaking in tongues. The intercession takes place in heaven. Jesus intercedes in heaven, Hebrews 7.25. The Spirit intercedes here and also in verse 34 at the right hand of God. That's where the intercession takes place. A number of religious groups believe they speak in tongues. This includes, of course, not only the Pentecostal churches, but some Hindus, uh, all Mormons look forward to this, many Muslims. In contrast, biblical tongues were actual languages. So this is not a tongues passage. But the Spirit himself intercedes. He knows our hearts. He searches our hearts. It's quite a passage. You might say, well, if Jesus intercedes and the Spirit intercedes, does that mean that we have two intercessors? I think it's probably speaking of a single intercession, but it does point up the cooperation between the Son and the Spirit. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of Bible readers stop right there. They look at Romans 8.28 and they say, everything will turn out fine, or everything will turn out for the best. What does that mean? Everything will be good. It's all good. It's not really what he's saying. And to understand Paul's message, we must read the whole paragraph. So we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, were called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So God's working in our lives. The fact that we suffer doesn't mean God is temporarily absent. He still works through his providence and according to his wisdom. But this doesn't take away suffering. So what's happening in the process? Well, we're becoming more like Jesus. God, who knows the beginning from the end, has a plan. And it mentions predestination to become conformed to the image of his son. We're not forced to do it. We have free will. Just as a bus is going to a certain destination. I live in Atlanta. Maybe the bus says Midtown. Well, if you stay on the bus, then you will go to Midtown Atlanta. That's the destination. If you get off the bus too soon, you won't make it. Or if you change buses, you may go somewhere else. As long as you're willing and you cooperate, you collaborate with God, then you will make it to the destination. What is the destination? Become conformed, be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be like Jesus. Not just in, wow, he gets a resurrection body, but to be like, like Jesus in his suffering. That's going back to 817. This is the plan, to become more like Christ. There's only one way that can happen, and that's to suffer. To be in the fire of affliction, to spend time in the crucible. Time in the crucible. Now, I don't think that this is giving us a chronological sequence. You're foreknown, you're predestined, you're called, justified, glorified. Some people take these verses as a sequence. I don't think so, but they are all connected to God, who's not inside time the way we are. There's probably no past, present, or future. I mean, he knows what we will do from our perspective because he's currently watching us do it, in a sense. And thus his foreknowledge is based on our free will decisions. He predestines us to be transformed, to increasingly take on the character of Christ. Go back to Romans 5.5. 5. We're called to Christ through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. We're justified through the blood of Christ when we respond to the gospel. Romans 5, Romans 10. At the end of time, we'll enter our master's glory. So these terms, being foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, are all things that are part of the Christian walk and the Christian experience. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, or nakedness or peril, or sword? Wow. Now Paul is summarizing his lofty thoughts. God is on our side. 
He's working powerfully in our lives and in the world despite suffering. Jesus intercedes for us. The redemption he brought about at Calvary is a reality, but his work of saving us is not completely finished. Yes, it is finished already, and yet, not yet is it fully completed. We're still on the way. Salvation is not static, it's dynamic. Various forces are in play on earth and in heaven, on our part and on his part, to bring us to our final destination. When it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, verse 35, this is not support of once saved, always saved. Not at all. After all, we need to keep ourselves in the love of Christ, Jude 21. No one can snatch them from my hand, Jesus says in John 10, and yet sheep can wander away. So this idea of once saved, always saved, not biblical. It certainly was not, never taught by the early church. What's Paul saying? The realization of our worst fears, the grimmest persecutions, any obstacle or threat the future may hold, none of these can defeat us. Yet we must do our part. As faithful Christians, we're on the side of the Lord of history who has all authority. Let's look at these last couple of verses. Just as it is written, he's just talked about uh, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, and so forth separate us. Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death. All day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Here he's quoting from Psalm 44, which is a prayer for God to rise up and defend his people. His people will suffer, and often it's because they are his people. They're living differently. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When he says that we overwhelmingly conquer, the NIV says we are more than conquerors. Paul has actually made up a word here. Uh, Nikomen would be we win or we are victorious. Paul makes up the word hypernikomen, like we, we hyper win, we super win, hypernikomen. We're totally victorious. If you were Latinizing it, this ritual would be we're super victors. Paul, he's exploding with expression here and truth. And so he makes up this word, hypernikomen, more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Complete and total victory is assured. Now Paul has made his case. Lost humanity, chapters 1 to 3, can be justified by faith, chapters 4 to 5. As a result of our death with Christ, chapter 6, we escape frustration, chapter 7, increasingly sharing in his glory, chapter 8, and all of this is from God. And now, since he's completed his argument, Paul turns next to consider the place of Israel. The concern will no longer be how does one become justified? What is the basis of justification? It's what about the Lord's action in the past with Israel? What has he been doing? What is the plan? And this he will cover in chapters 9 to 11. We hope you enjoyed Douglas' teaching on Romans. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. 
You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.